just a brief message before we get started with the episode. Uh, If you hear that the sound quality is a little bit wonky and even the sound can cut out a little bit, uh, apologies for that. I hope you can bear with us. It's mainly because there was variable headphone use in the episode and I think the strain of having eight guests on our uh, online recording software uh, may uh, may have played a role in it as well. So yeah, please bear with us. Apologies if if the sound quality isn't up to par to our previous episodes. Other than that, we just wanted to introduce you to some vocabulary that's used throughout the episode. So when you hear whitefish, that's an, an introductory field technique course that students uh, in the earth science department at U of T take in the summer of their second year. And it's basically introducing students to field techniques, uh, looking at outcrops, field mapping, uh, and basically introducing students to the very basics of uh, field school. So yeah, when you hear that, that's what it means. And other than that, this episode is talking about mandatory field course requirements, the lack of diversity in uh, geoscience, perhaps owing to field courses. And we have a really exciting uh, episode and we hope that you enjoy it. Without further ado, here's the episode. Welcome to Earth News Interviews, the podcast where we sit down with the experts and discuss the biggest questions and discoveries in the Earth Sciences today. Earth News Interviews is brought to you by the Department of Earth Sciences at U of T. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of Earth News Interviews. Today, we have a special episode. So a little while back, there was some thoughtful discussion in the department emails about an opinion piece. So this article argues against the mandating of field courses in the earth science slash geology programs. Sophia and I like topics of discussion which place the earth sciences in a larger context. And so she emailed some people that we thought would have some great perspectives on the issue or who have expressed some great perspectives on the issue. And we have them here with us today. So this episode will be in a roundtable format with our six guests, whom we'll now introduce one by one. And guests, if you would, when we introduce you, could you briefly remind our guests of your research focus, and then also maybe give us a memorable field course experiment that you had when you were a student, if you have one. So first up is Professor Uli Wortman. Hey, Dean. Yeah, thanks for the invite. What an awesome idea. Um, yeah, my, my research field is, in a nutshell, described as marine geology. And uh, there's quite a few memories of field work. Most of them I don't really want to share here in a public forum. But I can think about um, my very first one. I was a second, first-year geology student. Our first field camp was in March We had a foot of snow on the ground, heavy rain from the top. Everything was wet and miserable. And our team was assigned uh, real geologists from the survey who took us around five people on our first day. For lunch, he made us collect pretty a lot of wet wood. And he managed to get a fire going in the snow with the rain with a single match. I think that was the single most impressive thing I learned in university. Wow, that's pretty cool. And next is... Assistant Professor Dan Gregory. Welcome back, Dan. Yeah, thanks for having me. So my research kind of has a couple of 
focuses. Um, I work with gold deposits and trying to understand how they form and better ways to uh, vector towards them, as well as I do, I've started to do a lot more uh, nano analytical work. Um, so these are things like atom probe tomography and tr uh, transmission electron microscopy to understand how trace elements are held in individual mineral species. I'll be a bit more academic than Uli for, for my memories for field school. It was um, a mapping exercise in second year field school where we took a series of strike and dips going up this road and it, it curved um, on Salt Spring Island. And what it did was de define a fold structure as well as um, as there was a change in the stratigraphy that you could get out information on um, uh, on the depositional history of the area. So having kind of being able to identify the different lithologies and see how you're mapping those out and then how the striking dips that you're taking in the field equal uh, the fold structure it made sedimentology and structural geology and a number of other things that we talk about during during the semester just like kind of work in my head whereas structural geology especially up until that point to me was just like something really abstract so being able to see it in the field made me learn it whereas i think it would be gone by now certainly a familiar experience for me, at least. Next up is Assistant Professor Melissa Anderson. Great to have you with us again, Melissa. Hi, Dean. Hi, Sophia. Thanks for inviting me. Uh, so my name is Melissa Anderson, and my research focuses on deep sea hydrothermal vents. And I try to understand how broad scale plate tectonic processes influence submarine volcanism and the size and location of these hydrothermal systems. Um, so my field experience was maybe a little bit different than some of yours because I went to a really small university where our department didn't have a lot of money for field courses. So my first field course wasn't actually until I was in my fourth year. So instead, my field experience came mainly from working with small exploration companies in the summers. Um, and so in that case, you're kind of just thrown into things and you're not really prepared for it. So nobody sits you down and says, this is what you need. So my biggest memory was just before going into the field for the first time, talking to older students who've had more work experience and trying to figure out every piece of gear that I would need to take with me. And they're saying, oh, you need some uh, gaiters and a tilly hat and a cruiser vest. And I'm like, what are these words? <laughs> and then also just as a student trying to like get together all the, the gear, the money for all of the gear and trying to be prepared. Um, and that was quite a learning curve for me, just how to prepare for going in the field. Thank you. Um, next, we have Associate Professor Charlie Bank, who was in our inaugural episode. Welcome back, Charlie. Thanks, Dean and Sophia, for organizing this roundtable. I'm really looking forward to this. I'm an educator, as you know. I have a teaching stream position, so I um, teach mainly. And in my research, I do research with undergrads and have taken them to very remote and very interesting places. My One of my most memorable remembrances from undergrad was that was also early in my probably my second year or something early in my second year like in the fall that um we did a overnight excursion and the bus basically dropped us off somewhere and we just kept walking and on that walk we were looking at different rock types we were looking at structures we were looking at fossils and it kind of put it all together and then came the evening we had like the campfire and it was the first time ever that i camped that i slept in a tent and um, 
I really got hooked with that. And, um, and that's why I still like working in the field and taking people out into the field and learning with them there. Uh, next up, we have sessional lecturer, Dr. Selena Wu. First time on the podcast. Welcome. Thank you. Um, so yeah, I'm really glad that you guys invited me to this um, discussion. I'm interested in uh, economic geology and more specialized in uh, mineral chemistry or alteration mineral chemistry. Um, and so I would say that like a lot of my uh, industry experience, probably 50% of that uh, comes from fieldwork. Um, and, you know, even as uh, I was working, I also did a lot of training um, of geologists, um, like how to log core, how to like compile data. And so I, I feel like I'm pretty passionate <laughs> about this topic. One of the experiences that I remember from my first field course in uh, second year was we had to do a traverse on the side of the mountain and we all have uh, map partners. And my partner happened to be having a, sort of a panic attack or she, she said that she didn't have her uh, medication with her. And I think at the time, I was really stressed out because I didn't know what to do and, and I didn't know how to react. But because, you know, this is a group exercise, um, the instructor came by really quickly, realized that something was wrong, um, and then just pulled this aside and sat on the side of the mountain. And we just chatted really casually for, you know, almost half an hour and just calm everyone down and just rewind what the focus of the exercise is like. Don't worry if this is really hard. Like, you know, you, you look back at this, you know, five or 10 years later, it's not even going to be a thing. Like the real experience here for you is to, you know, get a sense of what it is to uh, see rocks in the in the field. Finally, we have PhD candidate Heidi Tomes, also first time on the podcast. Thank you, Heidi. Yeah, thank you for inviting me. I'm really excited to be here. Um, so as you said, I'm a PhD candidate. Um, and so my master's research was more mineralogy based. I studied some phosphate minerals. And for my PhD, I'm working on uh, the ge a geochemical and mineralogical uh, study of the phosphatic ironstone um, at the Rapid Creek Formation that's up in the Yukon and kind of doing an exploration um, of its environment of formation. For my field kind of memory, uh, I have this memory from my very first field school, which I took before I was even registered in the geology program at the University of Alberta. And it was kind of a field school for non-geology students. It wasn't required at all. And I took it to see kind of what geology was and if I actually wanted to go into the program. And on this uh, field school, we were up near the Radium Hot Springs uh, in BC, and we were looking at this like really big, huge thrust fault. And I asked one of the professors, I was like, oh, is this kind of like a really big part of like a really big mountain building fault? And he was like, no, 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 I don't know. And then he came back like 10 minutes later and was like, actually, you were right. This is part of the system. And I was just like, yes. Um, and it kind of like made me realize being able to connect kind of the things they were saying to us and see them in the rocks was just super, super cool for me. Um, and that was pretty much how I got into geology. And last but not least, our co-host, Sophia. I swear I didn't forget you. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. No, this is why I kept quiet for the other conversations, because I was like, wait, there's going to be some unknown voice, voice that's going to pop up, and I'm just going to be like, 
No one's going to know. But yeah, thank you, Dean. So uh, thank you, everybody, for being here. Uh, like Dean mentioned, uh, we are here because Uli introduced us to this really cool article a couple months ago. And there's an email thread discussion that we thought warranted a little bit of a deeper look. So I'm going to summarize what the articles that were sent around were. And the first one uh, came to us from graduate geoscience student Rebecca Zombach who writes about what she views as the outdated and inherently exclusive nature of mandatory field courses in geoscience. So her argument was that mandatory field courses, which are often the most celebrated and advertised courses of an earth science degree, can also act as a barrier to incoming students. So in our experience, field courses are usually one to two week intensive courses with a lot of walking on rough terrain, with costs up to $1,000, not including equipment fees. And students with any type of disability, financial uncertainty, caregiver status at home, or even an experience with the outdoors can find it really challenging. She argues that the traditional undergraduate field courses don't even cater to the myriad of fields within geosciences. For instance, a geophysicist uh, may benefit actually from a statistics course or a modeling course, while a geochemist would rather take a course in analytical chemistry than doing field course. The main point being is that concepts being taught in field courses nowadays days only cater to a specific subset of geoscience students. And the second article that Melissa sent us comes from the American Geoscience Institute and was written by authors and educators uh, Christopher L. Atchison and Brett H. Gilly, who are both uh, geoscientists as well. They wrote about the field course that the GSA, Geological Society of America, um, they essentially hosted a field course that promoted equality of opportunity. So this field course was made accessible to students and faculty with a range of physical, sensory, and cognitive disabilities. And there's a total of 28 participants from around the world and more than half of them actually identified as having a disability. So the trip itself uh, was planned two months in advance with engagement from all participants, not only just the people who are planning it and the need for contingency planning was avoided and the needs of all participants were considered. So for instance, creative learning methods were used like pairing up each student with a faculty member uh, to encourage participation, facilitate the exchange of ideas. Uh, textured maps were used alongside the original versions and descriptions of each site were provided in both text and audio format for listening. And in the rare case that uh, a location was hard to access, some students would bring rock samples back to the group to share. So overall, both students and faculty were really happy with the trip, citing that this has been the first field course where they truly felt included. And this pilot trip serves as a jumping off point for similar field trips and even more so a stepping stone for future geoscience field courses uh, as we grow and integrate our community. So both articles call for an open and honest conversation about the current problems and limitations of field courses and how they can be amended to foster a more diverse uh, geoscience community. So let's have that conversation. We're going to start off with Uli. What prompted you to send the accessibility article out to the earth science community? That's a really good question, Sophia. I, I had to think about it quite a bit. I mean, I've been, I'm a lab rat now, mostly, right? My son asked me, what do you do, daddy? And I said, I answer emails. But that's not how it's been. I had a very field-intensive undergrad years. I took every opportunity to grad student and post to get out. And I've been teaching field course here at U of T for 10 years and then took on a lot of trips uh, for upper-year students. I think it had to do with the fact that I became undergraduate chair and you start looking at things in a different perspective, more on an institutional level. You look what other institutes do. 
And in my role as undergrad chair, I became also very involved in accessibility issues on a variety of levels. So you start seeing things in a different light. And then colleagues of mine, like Melissa and Charlie, we had conversations and Melissa was pushing very hard that we have to open up our field courses. So based on my background, my role and the conversations I had in the hallways, I started thinking about these things. How can we do this? Can it be done? And as we all said here in the beginning, it is a formative experience for all of us, right? So it's important. And um, yeah, and when that article came along, it just really resonated with a lot of those thoughts and discussions I had in the past couple of years. And I figured it's probably a good thing to share and, and see what comes of it. Let's go with uh, Heidi, because you've actually helped teach uh, field courses, at least that Sophia and I have been a part of. We, we learned a lot from you and also in the course, but I was wondering if you could maybe elaborate on some of the what you feel are essential skills learned in a field course that may not necessarily be taught or, or at least easily taught in a classroom setting. Yeah, so I think I think I was actually thinking a lot about this this question and there's a lot of things that we can start teaching in the classroom. For example, like say strike and dip. Um, just last week I was TAing and teaching students how to use their how to use a compass on their phone through a, a Zoom class, right? So it's like we can teach that in the class when we were allowed to be in the classroom. We could um, use a compass, teach that in the classroom, just go outside and look at rocks. But what's what we don't get when we're teaching kind of the basic skill of strike and dip is that ability to actually look at an outcrop and know which um, plane, which surface actually needs to be measured, right? And that's the part that's um, very, very hard to, uh, yeah, just teach anywhere else. So kind of any of those transferable skills, well, even we can teach someone, okay, this is the basics of how to take notes, but until they actually go and look at the rocks, they won't know how to transfer that kind of knowledge into actual doing. So hi. Can I jump in here? Yeah. I think that that's a, that's a great example, but it's very much focused on a specific skill set. And when we have this discussion about field experience, the skill sets we have are probably wildly different, right? For Melissa, it was the skill set to get her gear together to go on a, on a sea on a sea expedition. My 10 years of field experience in Europe didn't prepare me in any way to what I saw here in Canada, right? So we all have, I think when we talk about what's the essence of this, it's not a particular skill set because those particular skill sets are very different. If Charlie takes people out with the geophysics uh, group, they learn GPR, right? I think that that is kind of really a point I've been trying to wrap my head around it because there is something we learn there, but it's not necessarily the compass thing, the GPR thing, right? I mean, who we have very few grad students of ours who still run around with the compass. You can become a professor without knowing how to do this. No problem, right? So, but still, something in that field experience is essential. Yeah, I think I, I sort of view this geology degree as like a long journey. <laughs> it's not just like each individual courses that we only learn a small thing out of. It's, it's actually, you know, a three to four year experience that you build with these people you meet at university 
And, you know, quite often the stuff we learn in university, you don't even do for work, but it's the people that you uh, meet along the way and the experience that you gained about um, how to deal with different kind of people. Like I find when I had my first uh, field school, there was so much that I learned that I never realized that other people did this. Like, and it's totally perhaps irrelevant to uh, what geology is, but the the actual experiences of seeing how different people solve problems, you know, the same problem can be solved in a multiple different kinds of ways. And it was like an opportunity for me to see how other people think, how other can other people can do things differently from what I do. And being in a field course mean like means that this is all um, a reaction that you need to have right away. You don't always have that much time to think about what you're going to do. So these are like really uh, kind of thinking exercises that you have to do on the spot um, and then have people contribute uh, different ideas into solving a much bigger problem. Yeah, I'd like to comment as well, um, based on what Selena was saying there. So I think that when you're in the classroom, you're in a very specific course, maybe you're learning mineralogy or igneous petrology or structural geology. But the benefit of the field camp is that that's where you put all of these different courses together practically. And it, you put it together in order to see the bigger picture. And things are often not as uh, nice as they are in the lab. You're, you're not given pristine samples. You're looking at rocks in all of their ugly, deformed, altered <laughs> forms. So I, I think that it is a way of taking things and putting it into a bigger perspective and seeing a bigger picture. And I think that that's really hard to do just in the classroom. Just to, to follow on on that, um, one of the things that we're trying to put more and more into our courses, and I know Melissa does this really well, is experiential learning. And in geology, we have the benefit of having this ready-made thing that is great experiential learning. So um, that is, I think, one of the big benefits of the field course in that you're able to tie in these different kind of seemingly random limbs together into a greater understanding and being there and seeing a rock uh, outcrop from multiple different angles being able to walk around it and then going to to the next outcrop and see how they tie together is a, a really way to be completely immersed and then also at the same time you're working with a number of other students and you're getting to know them better than you do in a normal lecture so having that tie between the students getting to really know each other, work together, it, that's where really great friendships um, evolve out of as well. And I did two undergraduate degrees. So one of them was in chemistry and the other one was in geology. And I know literally no one from, that I did my chemistry degree with, like did not keep in touch at all. Whereas I'm still great friends with a lot of people that I went through field school with. Yeah, I, I agree that the social aspect is a huge part of field work because you don't do it alone and often like in the in the course you can be alone the other aspect that i want to go back i think to to something that uli said for me in field work is is the idea of troubleshooting you will get into problems you will like in my case it might be that the equipment isn't performing as i as i think it should and you start troubleshooting and and we as instructors start to troubleshoot with the students and, and as, as Heidi said, the students have a, a voice and they have often like amazing ideas that, that we can act on. But we can also model 
how we think about a certain problem, how we approach it. Like what will be our next step in the field? Why do I want to go into this bush to, to check something out? And so I think that's something that is really difficult to recreate in the lab because yes, you can put it into lab exercise, but it's kind of forced, it's synthetic. It doesn't come naturally organically out of what you're doing. So I think we can all agree. And I think what I heard all of you mention is that geoscience courses teach us a myriad of skills, not just the technical, you know, looking at a rock and identifying it, but social skills, uh, leadership skills. And I'd like to go back to the specific courses or the specific skills that we learn. So at U of T, we have three specialist streams, geology, geophysics, and environmental science, and as well as two majors, earth and environmental systems and geoscience. So Charlie, since you teach the geophysics course, I'd like to hear from you first about whether you think that the current field courses cater to all of these equally. That's an interesting question that we have different field courses and like with, with different aims. So specifically the geophysics field course that I teach, some of the learning outcomes are not specifically to geophysics. Like I'm thinking of documenting your work so that students need to learn how do we document what we do so that someone else can go back, can find that same location and, and do the same survey. What considerations do you have to do before you go into the field? So we are not just catapulted somewhere and, and take measurements. We have to think beforehand how we want to take measurements. What is the, like the, with the limited amount of time, what is kind of the best outcome we have? And the, the troubleshooting that I mentioned before. But the other one is also fieldwork. And I've started in, in recent years to put more and more emphasis into that to give students actually tools how can they work in the in the team? How can they um, that there will be like some discussions that come up and and where people have different opinions? How can they resolve that? How can they work effectively as a team and um, and produce a, a result that they later can can show to a, to a client? Like I've done field work on my own in geophysics, and that is 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 really difficult. And, um, and it's just so much better to have someone in the field, not just to help with like hauling equipment around, but also to bounce off ideas to, to set things up. And so that's something that I try to do in the geophysics field course. And, um, and I try to teach it so that it's not just relevant to people going into geophysics, but I think it's also important for within other disciplines that they learn what is the language that geophysicists use how, um, what can the data actually give us and what can the geophysical data not tell us? I think at the University of Toronto, we're actually pretty lucky with how much variation we do have. But I think it is also easy to underestimate how useful a, a general geoscience um, field course like Whitefish is to people in these different disciplines. So um, just because we were talking about geophysicists, a geophysicist who has never seen rocks has a really difficult time modeling what rocks are based on geophysical responses. So having this sort of uh, linking of like geoscientists doing the same course as geophysicists can be very useful, I think, for their, their future careers. What Dan said is true, but in my experience, only a, not everyone takes, say, whitefish, because in the past it was specifically catered to the 
geoscience specialist because we have we can only take 15 people so most of the masters would not be a, uh, the majors would not be able to go charlie and i made a big push that we actually open that up that even people who start, uh, do a major can't have the right prerequisites to go to whitefish but that is something which will only come online i believe this year we in fact graduated a lot of people who've never been to whitefish right i mean our geophysics would have charlie's cam uh, people in the environmental stream would, would do the uh, deep river camp with uh, Grand Ferris. But our students are really lucky that we have all these different camps, but not everyone gets in all the camps they want, right? Because some of them are be really limited in terms of resources. What do you say to someone who says, I don't want to take a field course because I don't think it's relevant for my specific stream? In case of U of T, for instance, taking the introductory mapping course or even the geophysics course, one of the beginning ones that are mandatory. I, I never had a student saying that, actually, right? So, um, but I think we would have a bit of a discussion and talk about what he thinks is important and why he thinks that, right? And there may be, in fact, people who have good reason not to take a field course, right? You may have, for example, strong pollen allergies, you may not be able to go to whitefish, right? So, and then we would think about what can we do about that? If it's simply a question of, I don't want to do this, I would say, well, sorry, we, we have a plan of what you have to do, right? So it's, it's, a bit of, it's a bit of more of a nuanced discussion there. If I can jump in, if I can talk about like a historical view, I think we would all agree that we, like that historically field courses are perceived somewhat like a rite of passage. Like, like, I think each profession has like a right of passion, and for um, geoscientists, it's the field course. And that goes so far as when you want to register as a professional, they require a field course. And that was one of the key reasons that we actually brought on board the geophysics field camp. Um, that's about 10 years ago now, but before there was no field camp and we realized that our students could not become professional geophysicists in Canada if they didn't have that. And on the other hand, I agree with students who say, well, why do we need that? Because I think there's a lot of really good geoscience done that's not field-based. You can do modeling, you can do lab-based. Still, I mean, I would argue with those people, and Dan mentioned that before, that like anything that we do in earth sciences, we kind of need to take back to what the earth tells us. And what we get from the Earth is the data, and that has to be collected somehow, somewhere. And yes, there's more and more remotely done, but but still now people have to go into the field. If I um, want to image like an archaeological site without digging it, geophysics is a really good tool, and that can only be done in the field by by boots on the ground. I think that there aren't too many students who have a very clear idea of exactly what they want to do either. So this is just another tool in their tool belt. Maybe they'll use some of the field skills, maybe they won't, but it does keep doors open for them. So I think in that sense, um, it's, it's not difficult to convince students the value of any given course, just to expand their knowledge. And as Charlie was saying, basically, being able to um, have a really broad understanding. If you're only going to work in the lab, then relating that back to where the data and the samples are coming from, having that kind of a really broad perspective is only helpful, even if after taking a field course, they never step foot in the field again. That's actually one thing that I've 
heard a lot from students from Whitefish afterwards, students who were just like, I thought that I would hate this. I thought that I would learn nothing, that it wouldn't be relevant to me. But like, I actually learned a lot. I don't really want to go in the field again after this, but like, it was so worth doing. And like that, I think actually probably more students uh, think that than actually say it. But I've had a number of people over the years kind of mention that specifically to me. Yeah, I would I would say the same thing. Within 10 years of teaching that course, I never heard anyone saying never again, right? People who have been, they may have been annoyed, they may have been happy to go home, but everyone took something out of this, which they made them really proud and happy. Yeah, I think to, to add in to that too, um, it, some of it comes down to your philosophy of what, what we're trying to teach people at university and for me i think what we're trying to do is introduce you to a number of different aspects of the discipline um, as well as um as create uh well-rounded scientists not just train someone to do a specific job they think they're going to do at the end of it so part of that is doing some courses that you don't think is relevant with for what you're going to do um in the future because to be completely honest, if what you're going to be doing is, say, working on hard rock porphyry deposits and exploration for those, maybe a sedimentology course isn't that useful to you, but I think you should still take it. I kind of want to, yeah, echo, echo this, this sentiment that it can feel like a rite of passage. Uh, you, Especially having it early on in your undergrad, you, you kind of form a, a bond with your peers you get um, support that way, and as you as you go through your classes each year, and it's definitely used kind of as a, a recruitment angle in the marketing. You, the pictures are of, of students out there on rocks in the woods and and hiking. But I wonder, like, so this article is more about the fact that there are a lot of people who don't know that they wouldn't regret it. They just see that there's a requirement, and they say clearly this field is not for me because maybe I don't like, maybe I don't really do well in social situations. Maybe I prefer working by myself. Maybe I prefer doing research or being in a lab or computer modeling or something like that. And so is there is there a way that we can advertise the programs that maybe that we don't need field courses for so people know that yes there are routes to study the geosciences or to work in the geosciences without some of these elements that you're really averse to whether or not they would like it in my intro course this is also where we get kind of a broad spectrum of students it's the earth system sciences course Um, and there we're also kind of introducing students to the geosciences for the first time Um, And I do pay special attention at the beginning of the course to talk about the different kinds of fields of geology. So just like medicine or any other science, geology is a huge field and there's a really wide range of career options and a really wide range of different kinds of settings that you can work in. Um, So some students are going to be way more keen to work in a lab or um, doing computer modeling in an office or going into the field. And even throughout your career, that might change. So part of my strategy is to just 
describe all of the different options that are available and not just focus on the field. Um, that being said, the students get really excited when I mention all of the different international field trips that the students have the opportunities to take, because that is an opportunity that a lot of students might not have otherwise, especially in other programs. So it is something that's a little bit unique, but I think our strategy really needs to be um, holistic, not just focused on the field, but advertising widely all of the options available, including advertising things like um, alternatives. If you're not able to do a field course, yes, there's this mandatory requirement, but you can fulfill that in a different way, such as Dan's virtual field course. Can I add to that? Um, so instead of maybe thinking about, you know, how expensive uh, field courses sometimes are as a burden for a student. Um, maybe we can also think about it the other way around in terms of after you graduated with a universe, a geology degree, and you decided that you want to get some field experience. Now, if you try to get industry field trip or field course to teach you how to map or any of those, they're going to be so expensive. So I would almost say that by having this as an opportunity to do um, as an undergraduate student, you actually get to pay like these at cost amount um, to do something that you might not be able to do once you graduate from the program. I think that that's one perspective. And the other thing is, I think cost is not really that much of an issue at U of T anyway. That may be different in the US where field courses can be, many are run commercially because universities no longer offer them individually. Um, and in my experience, when a student here had financial problems coming on a field trip, the department was always able to find some sort of solution, right? So at least for the required field trips like Whitefish or Benny Bell, et cetera. It may be that you don't have the funds to go on one of the fancy uh, international ones, but the core experience, I think this department has made a great effort to get everyone on board there where possible. And compared to the other departments, we are dirt cheap. If you do ecology, et cetera, and you have to take the six-week ecology thing in Central America, that's really a lot of money, right? We're talking many, many thousands of dollars. So um, we have to be a little careful with this article. This is very specific to the US. I don't think it applies that much to us. Anyway, 500 bucks are a lot of money if you're a student, that is true. Uh, but we have a lot of bursaries for students in, um, in financial need, and uh, there's always a way to make things work. Can, can, I, can I go back to those two articles for a moment? Because it strikes me that they take very different opinion, right? The one article argues that basically field courses are outdated and exclude people. And, and therefore um, shouldn't be offered, whereas the, the other article um, goes in and, and says, well, we want to make the field experience accessible to everyone. And um, because, because there's so much that can be taken out of it. And, um, and so I think there's, there's these two sides that, that we also, in a way, could think about as a department. How do we approach that? So if a student can't, take part in a, in a field course. Why is that? What, what is the reason for that? And, um, and there's myriad reasons from financial to like just like physical abilities. Um, on the other hand, both of these we can help with. And I, I do agree though that 
earth sciences is still a male, white male dominated field. And, um, and so maybe the field experience is part of that, that it, it has traditionally excluded women and, and people of color because they didn't feel welcome to be in a close field um, camp with, with other people. I guess going back to, um, you know, having this offer to undergrads, I think in, a, in the article, the, um, the writer kind of made it sound like, you know, this is really unfair to um, people who have difficulties or people who are, you know, female or race. Um, but I think in my perspective, well, being female and a visual minority, uh, I feel like that this really uh, leveled the playing field for everyone. Instead of this field course being an elite sort of experience that, you know, if I can't get this experience, I'll just pay to do it at a different place, like international school or like at a different university. This is actually provided to every student within the department. So this is allowing everyone who is in the program to have access to this resource. So, you know, if you're trying to um, apply for a job and that job or, you know, a professional license um, that requires you to have field experience, I don't actually have to outsource it, go to a different city or go to a different location, uh, um, different part of the country in order to get this experience. I can actually get this at my own university. So I think this experience is very different from the U.S. experience. Um, you know, I, I think that it would be, sad to not have this as an opportunity for our undergrads. I, I'm curious here, Heidi, you, you've been to Whitefish as a student, as a TA many years, and as a student and TA, you, you get a very different perspective than I as a prof, and you hear different things, right? And Whitefish is a fairly mixed experience, so I think uh, at least half of our students are of ethnic backgrounds. There's a lot of female students there. Have you ever picked up on this um, feeling that students didn't feel welcome because of their gender or ethnicity? Um, so I actually I have not been on Whitefish as a student, just as a TA, but the students kind of have talked to, talked to me about these things. Uh, and not so much in the context of actually the field school um, itself. For the most part, I've heard some people talk about having experiences with the local community, kind of racialized people who've been just getting stared at, you know, when we're at the mall getting lunch or something. And like, they're just like, what is this person's problem, right? Um, and so there's been kind of moments like that that students have talked to me about. Um, and there's definitely have been women who have come to talk to me to get advice about being a woman in the field, um, you know, how to kind of, maybe they've, you know, never had to use the bathroom outside before. And it's like, they're like, ah, what, you know, I need, I need some tips on this. And so I do also, I definitely have female students coming to kind of ask me questions and talk to me about stuff like that. But I don't think I've ever had anyone actually tell me that they don't feel welcome um, because of it or really any, any overly negative experiences. I think actually one of the experiences that I had that where I actually had not ever thought of it before, um, but there was a group of students that all um, wore headscarves and we went to go talk to them uh, kind of after dinner one night to, as a bunch of TAs to help. And they answered the door and realized that there were some of the male TAs there and 
pretty much slammed the door. It was like, please tell them to leave. And I was like, oh, okay, this is something that, you know, I hadn't really thought about um, before. And that, you know, having U of T be so diverse that now I knew when I was able to like take that to next year's field schools and the field schools after that and kind of, you know, make sure to at least just kind of organize um, with people who might have those issues. I think when we talk about the gender gap, um, most of the focus isn't necessarily from the undergrads. That's not where we're losing a lot of females in this field. So if we look at the numbers, um, it's pretty much equal or even maybe more females who are um, finishing undergraduate degrees. Where the biggest challenges lie is actually in the jobs that involve a lot of field work and a lot of the disparities there. So, for instance, when it comes to things like um, dealing with maternity or parental leave, that's many, many decades behind other, other areas. And my own most negative experiences all came from working in mineral exploration field camps where either I was the only female and then that alone made me feel isolated or examples of um, sexual harassment that I dealt with and a lot of females that I know who are geologists have dealt with. But we don't really experience this (laughs) in the same kind of overt way in an undergraduate field camp. So I I think that that might be a bit of a different discussion. Um, But how do we have these conversations with our female students that we're trying to advise and mentor and prepare them to deal with these things? I think a a great equalizer in a sense is the potential of online field course learning. And I think we've all learned in terms of the COVID pandemic that this is potentially an option that is not only allowing uh, field courses to be more accessible to students with financial need, but also in terms of the lack of an ability to get together and and have these field courses. So Dan and Heidi, actually, since both of you uh, designed the field course this year, can you guys talk a little bit about that course and what successes and challenges you have? Yeah, so um, yeah, thank you as well for helping uh, design that course, Sophia. So what we tried to do with this course was to um, match a lot of the skills that are done in field course, as well as in in areas where we didn't think we could do a good job of matching the skills. We tried to develop different field scores, such as core locking, which which Heidi um, developed. Now, I think that there was a lot of successes in that uh, I think a lot of the learning objectives um, were met. But one of the biggest difficulties was building the community. Um, so we've got some ideas. Um, Melissa had some great suggestions on how to revise this going forward, but uh, it was really hard to get people to engage online, even though we tried a number of different techniques and you just didn't get that community feeling that you come out of field camp with. So I think that was my, my biggest disappointment uh, with that course. And I should note that pretty much everybody said they would have preferred a uh, in-person field course on that as well, um, despite the many, many hours of effort trying to build this um, and to try and make it feel as close to being in the field as possible. Um, it was unanimous that the students would have preferred being in the field, except for one. So not, not quite unanimous, but close to. I want to ask um, about challenges of being a professor and teaching field courses. Are there any challenges, any difficulties that go into planning a field course, executing a field course um, that 
people might not think about. I think the scariest thing is safety. I think it's the first thing that's on all of our minds, especially when we're on some Canadian uh, road cuts where we're looking at outcrops on the side of a highway and there's big logging trucks flying by and you're just constantly, constantly concerned about student safety and trying to manage that. I think that that's everyone's biggest concern when it comes to running these field courses. I think over the last couple of years, we also learned unexpectedly that mental health issues can have a huge impact on field course. And that certainly was unexpected uh, to me as a professor and then as an undergrad chair. And we put a huge effort into setting out boundaries and guidelines how to deal with that. So, um, and that's, I don't know whether that's a newer development or we just talk about it in a different way these days, right? So that I cannot really say for sure, but that was certainly one of the big surprises in my career. Well, yeah, it's interesting that that you mentioned that because I wanted to say that I, um, in this vein, just add that I think we are more open to talk about it, but legally we are not allowed to ask about it. And so I, because like 10 years ago, I would actually talk openly to my students about if they would have any health issues, I had them fill out a form and they said, this is, this is confidential. But if something happens, say you are unconscious and I have to take you to hospital, I have information about you. Maybe you are allergic to penicillin or something like that. We don't want to find that out when they give you penicillin because, because they have to. I'm not allowed to ask that. And similar like mental health um, students that are, at, at UFT registered with accessibility services, we might, in usual courses, we get to know here from accessibility services how we might accommodate them. In a field course, that might be too late if I hear that like four days after we are in the field, the course is half over and there's not much I can do about that. So somehow I think we, I, I would love to have find a better balance how we can openly talk about it amongst faculty and also with our students. Because as Melissa said, it, it can become a, a, a safety issue. If you have like one student that um, say stays behind in the, in the field and what do you do? Like you can then have to change it for the whole group because that one student can't do it. I had like years ago, I, was, I did a field trip to the Niagara um, Gorge and we went down to the Niagara River and one student froze because um, they had vertigo and, and said, well, next to running water, and they had never been to the Niagara River, so we're not aware how strong that current is. And we were just next to it. And I physically had to take that student at the hand and move them away from the river. And that's when they mentioned that to me. And I said, yeah, you don't have to be, feel embarrassed or something that's fine. Like we have, we have these, um, these issues, right. And we can deal with that. But in a way I would have wished I knew that beforehand because I might have, this was like a group of, of 30 students, probably I might've been at the very front and that people might've been at the very back and could have gotten completely lost. Right. Um, so, Melissa, I wanted to point this question to you because you mentioned safety, but you also mentioned the gender gap. And I think this question kind of touches on both. Uh, so the author of the first article writes that geology is not a field that invites discussion of perceived weakness or disability, and it can be incredibly isolating and demoralizing. To what extent do you agree or disagree with this statement? 
I agree with this absolutely 100%. Um, I myself don't have any disabilities, but I have had some of my own experiences of so-called perceived weakness and this um, really kind of toxic outdoorsmanship kind of behavior. So I was working with a colleague once who was really fit and I wasn't as fit and I was struggling to keep up. And I remember getting a comment like, why would you want to be a geologist if you're not like fit and running around in the field? And to me, I was really taken aback and I was thinking, well, I don't want to be a fitness instructor. I want to be a geologist. I don't think you have to be the most physically fit person in the world to do great geology and be a great geologist. So that was kind of my first experience with that. And I think that that was just one small experience. And I can't imagine how difficult it could be if you have a, a much larger disability or anything like that. Um, and I think that this is a conversation that we need to have. And it's just kind of the the social side of um, how we perceive geology that I think needs to change. And <laughs> that I don't know how we do that. I don't know where we're going to start besides just having these conversations with our students and and hopefully being open about the experiences that we've had ourselves. Um, and also just as we increase the diversity of this field so that it's not, um, as Charlie was saying, dominated by um, just the same kind of people, the same white males. We do have a lot of fantastic geologists of all different kinds of races and genders and ethnicities. So I think that it's a field that's going to be slow to change, but hopefully as it changes, um, these kinds of um, problems won't be as bad. Yeah, it reminds me of that movie, uh, Gold, uh, where the guy is trying to figure out um, a geologist to, to, to hire to go with him. And it, there's this almost cheesy montage of a athletic, burly white guy with a beard who is just like, jumping around and 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 being really athletic and knowing exactly everything about the geology and can read a rock just by looking at it and stuff it was it was it was i think it was meant to be funny and maybe meant to poke fun at that at that uh, perception but it's definitely it's definitely there i think that brings us really back to the whole question about what is field work and what is really important in field work so that comic, that cartoon you just sketched, that I think, I believe for many people, the epitome of field work, right? You're running around, you're the cool guy, you're strong, you're fit, you're hiking, you're camping, you're looking at rocks, you're the adventurer, right? But I would think the reality for most of us who do field work, it looks very, very different, right? If you do field work on a, on, on a drill ship, it has nothing to do with that. You will need very different qualities. Uh, and so I think that's where it's important. We have this corporate identity, which may no longer be in sync, which was actually in the marketplace, right? The dude over there who knows, who knows like uh, coding and, and geoinformatics may have been a much better shot at becoming a geologist than you, right? So that's, I think, where we have to start thinking when we have this conversation about inclusivity and diversity is, is that image we have for the geologist, the geoscientist these days is, is that actually still true? So there, I think, is, is where we have to have the conversation. 
I think that a lot of this image perception just comes from pop culture. It comes from movies. Like you, you see Pierce Brosnan being like a really cool volcanologist in Dante's Peak. And then you're like, yeah, that's, that's a volcanologist. And it's going to be a long time before I think that we get better representation in the media. So we have to kind of counteract that. And in my classes, I like to bring in different kinds of guest speakers, especially young researchers who are working on lots of dynamic things, female researchers, um, just to show people that anyone can be a geologist. And I think that showing people is much more effective than telling people. And the range, that question of questions that count as geological questions, right? Because, yeah, as, as Uli said, it's not the guy with a beard and a big hammer running through the bush that's the that we see as the geoscientist yeah i, I think most people when they do think of um volcanologists they probably don't even know how many bubbles they have to count or how many like statistical um, analysis that they have to do as part of the main uh volcanology research um but i but what i did want to add though about the sort of um maleness quotation um, in geology. I think it really is a journey learning about what your limitations are. I think all of us are comfortable at doing certain things and some of us are not. Some of the, us have the patience to do certain things and some of us don't. And uh, I think the first time, the first experience when you have someone, you know, who is maybe a rock climber and they make certain comments to you about, oh, well, well I don't think you should do that um, because you're you're not a rock climber. I think at first that that might come as kind of degrading um, as someone, you know, I don't rock climb. But, you know, now that I'm this old, um, I know that I wouldn't be fated by comments like that because I know what my strengths are and my strength isn't really finding a rock at the steepest hill. My strength is to finding the important outcrops that I need to solve the mystery. So, you know, I, th I think part of this field course really is putting you in a situation where you get to gauge what kind of a specialist you are um, at the end of the day, what your strengths are. And I think that some of us don't even know what our limitations are. You know, Charlie's uh, story about how a student doesn't realize how um, how they would react next to this really fast running river. And I think it's experience that you probably wouldn't know unless you're being uh, exposed to it. And I think the uh, greatest part of this experience is that that student was with someone they can trust, was with a big group that they would be safe. And they learned that this is actually something that they have issues with. And they learned that as part of, you know, growing up, that this is something I need to be careful of. So I don't think taking out the experience would be the solutions for, you know, overall big picture. Yeah, I want to follow on what Selena was saying a bit and, and tie back to the article as well, because I think um, the the first article anyway, she's talking about a very different field school than I've ever taken or that we teach here. It sounds like they're basically dropped off in the middle of nowhere by themselves to wander around miles and miles and miles. I don't think that that is a very good field experience. Um, whereas what I've taught in the past and plan to teach in the future, we may go off in our own little groups, but we're relatively close. You're not trekking over miles and miles. And then you can build into the course um, ways for people 
who aren't as mobile to still be a part of the team who's putting this map together and do things like have a detailed map in one area where there can be a van close by if they have to to go for whatever reason and and to like not attach stigma to that because that can be stigmatizing if it's just like oh i guess you have to just sit here and do nothing all day what you do is you build you have a part of the map area that needs a detailed look so a detailed stratigraphic session or something like that that can be built into the overall map of the project and don't tell it tell anyone like oh who wants to do that like figure that out based on what people have said before maybe have a questionnaire for what they're more comfortable on that way there's not stigma attached to it it's part of the project it's a useful part of the and needed part of the project and then everybody's also in the field and getting the experience in a safe environment uh, i wanted to ask a question i guess to everybody have you noticed because you're in a unique position that you've been a student at one point of a field course and you went on a field course and then you potentially also TA'd one like Heidi uh, and now you are actually planning them. So in this span of time, have you noticed a climate shift in terms of uh, accessibility or just general more uh, acceptance or at least the admission of the fact that these aren't, uh, these aren't, these are courses that actually limit people? I think as a student, I didn't have a very good appreciation of what went into planning a field course or the logistics behind it. I was just there to survive. Um, and then teaching or leading field courses, you start to see a lot of the complexity. So it's really hard to judge if something has actually changed, also being at different institutions. Um, but I do feel like, especially when we've all had to shift everything online, just this conversation has become a lot more front and center. Um, so it, it's hard to say as a student <laughs> um, how how much thought your professors put into these things. Um, and you you start to realize how, um, how many different um, things you have to take into account with the diversity of your students' needs and abilities. So a, a greater appreciation is what I've gained over time. And, and hopefully these conversations are shifting us to have um, even more opportunities for everyone in the future. I think back then when I was an undergrad, the word diversity didn't even exist, right? So um, people were attracted to earth sciences because it had this image of the cool outdoor guy. And no one even worried about those people who were not attracted to it, right? So um, it was that that we start having this discussion at all to me shows a major shift in how how do we perceive things right certainly from back then when i was young yeah to, to me a field course has in a way three aspects there's the pedagogical aspect there's the logistical aspect and there's the social aspect and i think as a student maybe the social aspect was the strongest of those three when i t8 experience I learned more about the pedagogical and then later it's becoming like the the logistical aspect is uh, is not the most important but is one that I have to put more effort in and um, so I've done a lot of field work with students so these are smaller groups of students maybe like three to I think the biggest one was 10 students and I try to involve them with the logistical aspect try to get them to realize that well 
to the field work. It's not that you are step on a bus or on an airplane and that takes you somewhere. You have there's a lot of work that goes on beforehand. Like you need to to book all that. You need to think about your research question, what equipment to take, how to how to approach that question, where you will stay, how you will live, how you will eat, and all those things. And then still during the field course, I think the social aspect is is still key. And that's something that is probably the hardest to reproduce outside of the field is because in the field you realize you are dependent on others. You really have to rely on them. You have to trust the people you are in the field with. So I think there's there's all these different aspects that come together and um, and where the, the field course is great. And so in a way, I hope that that everyone can have that experience, that people are not um, prevented from taking that because of accessibility issues, because of financial issues, because of family issues. So we created a little survey for undergrads in the earth science department um, and had them fill out um, about these topics, uh, some of their opinions and experiences. And so we got a lot of positive comments, actually. Some really liked getting exposed to new experiences and pushing, pushing their comfort limit, uh, getting to work in diverse weather environments in a friendly university environment rather than a new work environment where you're the new person there, you know? Um, we did have one response say that the requirement presented an issue because they had difficulty arranging for time that they had to be away from home. And I guess it, it wasn't clear to this person that there are accommodations that can be made with this. Is there any way that we can uh, get that to communicate that with, with people? Obviously this skews because we only we only sent this out to people who ultimately chose to be in the earth science program. This didn't we weren't able to really send it out and you know get input from people who looked at it and then decided no that's not for me. But so is there any way we can we can approach this communication um, and maybe be a bit more clear about about the field course requirements? I think that this is a really important point. So we've been discussing fieldwork as a barrier if you have some sort of maybe disability or other kind of issues to actually performing the fieldwork. But there's this whole other level where it comes to maybe you have to work full time to support yourself or you're taking care of a family member or anything that might mean that taking a couple of weeks to do a field camp is going to be really challenging for you. And I think that that's one of the reasons why it can be a struggle for people to go into geology because um, especially if you are from a lower income bracket, for instance, this is a big ask for people. And I do think that this is something that we do need to communicate better with our students. So right now we show that we have this mandatory field requirement, but we are able as a department to, to take individual um, considerations for each student. So if someone says, I absolutely can't do this, it's not working, then we can make arrangements and um, things like the virtual field experience that Dan has been developing, we can develop better or we can have some sort of remote learning um, kind of independent study project. So right now, um, we're kind of at, at the beginning of having these discussions of how we can apply a more even approach to students who do need this um, field credit but can't take a traditional field school. 
Um, so our job will be, number one, developing these different virtual field experiences and learning from the virtual field experiences and also communicating that they are available. Now, that doesn't necessarily mean that we want students to take them instead of the field camp if they are able to take the field camp, because we do know that there is a lot of value in getting in the field if you can. But just to say that we do have an alternative and to kind of communicate that and advertise that broadly. So if a student is looking at a course calendar or checking out our website that they can see in bold print right next to the mandatory field requirement that there is an alternative so that they don't get scared from like maybe they were thinking of doing a geology specialist and now they say, oh, no, I can't do that. And who knows how many students we're losing because of that. So I do think that we're moving towards this direction and, and hopefully we'll do better in the next year. So I, I do think we do have a lot of room for improvement here. Yeah, well, I think we're pretty much ready for that now. Uh, I also would not want people who can take the field course to do the online one instead but Sophia is currently working with me um, to take in the feedback we got from the last one and and make it better but I think for I, th I think the best use of it is for people who have you know child care obligations work obligations to be able to take it instead because yeah leaving for two weeks can be difficult for people in that situation uh, two of the students that were taking it this past semester were were working full-time and sending money back home. So it, it does give that flexibility. And the one thing that I might change as well as some of the content I discussed earlier is that we could extend the timeline, which would help those people more too, because we still kept it to a month, um, partially to give me enough time to develop it. But it, by extending the timeline that they have, it, it makes it easier to do the course material in the evenings rather than during you know workday time. And there might be ways that we don't think like of a in-field versus an online experience, there might be ways to do a hybrid model that so that the bulk is done kind of online, but there might be still like a day or two that students then go into the field and do some work on an outcrop. Or there might even be ways down the road that we have some students actually participate virtually in a field course so that, that, that students and instructor are in the field and then maybe students with the TA are somewhere in a classroom and and experience it, it that way. I, I think that we will develop and, and in a way the pandemic has been interesting and good in showing us that there is other ways to teach. I mean, I'm learning a lot. I'm redesigning a lot of what I've done. It's a lot of work, but I hope it will be a good experience for my students. I think there are a lot of creative approaches that we can take. And I think that we can learn from other institutions and departments who have been trying their own approaches to kind of alternate field camps. And um, I think that the key is communicating the message, as you said, Dean. So communicating that these options are available. I want to point the next question to Selena because you worked in industry and most students thought that compulsory field courses was an overall good idea from our survey. And one student in particular thought it would be a disservice to our program to make field courses optional. And uh, they basically said that it would make our program less competitive and our students would be at a disadvantage when they're applying to industry jobs. Would you like to comment on this? Um, yeah, I 
Thanks. So, um, so I, I guess it's kind of a different environment right now. But when I did my undergrad, um, we, in addition to our field course, um, it was also at a time when everyone could get a summer job. So in a way, people were able to get um, field experience independent from their field course, because, you know, at least 50% of the people in my class had a field job in the season. So in that sense, they got their exposure from. But, um, you know, while while I was in um, in Australia, when I sort of helped train the geologists how to log, um, a lot of them didn't have that summer work experience because their programs is a lot shorter, it's three years. And, you know, there, there is a bit of a gap in terms of, oh, who has actually gotten a uh, done an honors thesis, because if you did an honors thesis, it also meant that you did the um, this, did this particular mineral exploration um, field course that's offered by my then university um, at UTAS. And so I think when people look at your resume, they're always going to, like, if, if everyone is freshly graduated from the high school, there are going to be these certain things that set you apart. And so if a student doesn't have any field experience, I think I would hesitate to, you know, out of a pool of say 20 students to pick that one who doesn't have field experience over ones that do. This is something that Dan and Selena and I have talked about quite a lot. So all coming from an economic geology background, one of the important things to us is that we are preparing our students for when they graduate to be really competitive in the market. And as Selena was mentioning, having field skills, any kind of field skills is going to be better than having none, which is why as a department, we're not really considering getting rid of the field course or making it non-mandatory. Our discussion is focused more towards making it more accessible or giving students more options to complete this requirement. And again, the the students who want to do exploration geology, for instance, are going to be way more interested and get a lot more out of this than the student who's not interested in that at all. So will a field course make you more competitive if you want to do lab work for the rest of your life? Like, are recruiters there going to look at that line on your CV and judge you differently, right? So again, a lot of people end up going into exploration geology. And I think that's where some of this um, bias towards what makes a good geologist come from comes from. Yeah, just to follow on that, um, I think it is really important that it is a mandatory part of the program, because I've been told flat out by industry people that they won't hire someone from a university that doesn't have a mandatory field component. And that's not even that's not just I won't hire someone who hasn't taken a field course. It's I won't hire someone from a university that doesn't have a mandatory field course. So I've kicked this around at a number of meetings and just to kind of suss people out. And the one thing to remember is that, you know, these biases do exist and they're the people who are hiring people. So while I think it's important to have the other options to get those field credits and that field experience so it's open to everyone, I think that if we get rid of the, um, the mandatory field requirement, we're doing disservice to the students. Yeah, I I just actually support what Dan said. I actually had a conversation with a friend the other day um, about this topic. He works in industry. He's hired many students, many recent grads over the years that he's been doing it. And one of his comments was that schools that have multi-year field schools churn out the best field geologists. And those are the people that like in industry that we want to be hiring. 
And he was just like, you know, if someone hasn't done any field work, then they haven't really seen kind of how big and messy looking at geology is in nature. And so, yeah, I just wanted to support what Dan was saying that he was essentially just like, I wouldn't hire somebody if they didn't have a field school. Because the other thing that he commented on actually was that if, you know, the industry is really bad and they didn't have options, like Selena was talking about, um, in having field jobs in the summer, then they at least can say they kind of, they know those basic skills. They have a little bit of experience, like, hey, give me a chance. I've done some work in this and I want to do more. So one last takeaway from the uh, student survey, two thirds of students said that they were taken outside their comfort zones while in a field course. And they, by and large, took this to be an important learning experience. It broadened their horizons, as we were kind of alluding to earlier in the discussion. Anyone here have any stories about being taken outside their their comfort zone and, and having their horizon expanded? I think every field experience I've ever had has taken me outside of my comfort zone in some way. Uh, So yeah, I was in the position where my early field experiences came from working in Northern Canada for exploration companies during summers. This was before I ever took a field school. So there was no training. It was junior companies. I'm really thrown into things. And so the, the comfort level that I had in the field got better each time, but still it would be okay so i've i've figured out what kind of boots i need and you know what kind of clothes to wear but i would still be lugging around a giant suitcase full of too much clothes in the field and i'd be like oh okay so i i feel like an idiot doing this no one else is doing this and so every every single experience that i had in some ways would make me feel really self-conscious and i would be like oh i'm doing this wrong and i'm an idiot um but then i would learn from that and get a little bit better and a little bit more comfortable and each field experience i felt more and more comfortable and more and more competent so i didn't start out as like an outdoorsy person who went hiking every weekend but that's kind of more of who i turned into um, and I was really fortunate that I had a lot of fantastic uh, mentors and instructors along the way. And I think that I learned far more from that. And also going back into the classroom after a field, a field experience of any kind, whether or not it's working in industry or taking a field course or just going on a field trip, you can see that the students who do that are more engaged with the material when they're back in the classroom and can see the broader implications and and kind of will ask different questions. And it's a lot more interesting to take a geology course when you've actually seen some geology too. So um, yeah, I've definitely, every single time I'm in the field, even now that my field work is uh, not so much hiking through the swamps in Northern Canada, it's going on big ships. I still am outside of my comfort zone a lot of the time. Um, And that's just how we grow as people, I think. And it's really nice to become more experienced and to build that confidence in yourself. Yeah, and I think like overall, the one thing that we're trying to achieve really is to allow them to acquire new experiences in a way that they feel that it's supported and that it's safe. So, you know, I've I've never actually been camping until um, second year in university. That's my outdoor background zip. And so, you know, doing uh, second year field school was like the first time I've ever been outdoors, you know, in the middle of nowhere for that long. So that was a huge experience and like so overwhelming. I don't know what I'm doing. Like my uh, friends had to take me to MEC store for the first time to, you know, talk about how to layer things. And it was an adorable 
experience and they just thought it, it yeah it was hard for them to imagine that someone's never uh been camping before and would like to go into geology but that's that's different story um but yeah i think like most of the uh course i felt that my instructor gave me a lot of things to prepare me as to what that future is going to be so obviously there was a cost attached i can't exactly remember how much it was, but it was basically to cover the logistics. Um, but she gave us a list of items that we'll need. Um, and then, you know, a few scenarios, you know, during class, like, you know, this is what might happen. This is what you're expected to do. And so I think part of helping people embrace this adventure or experience is to help them prepare what they might be expecting. And, you know, they, they don't feel as, you know, startled if, if something comes out um, all of a sudden. But part of the experience is to learn something that you, you haven't done before. So I think it, it, it's absolutely correct that all of us would, would have been taken out of our comfort zone at some point. Yeah, I think Melissa said something important here. She said much of her experience being outside of her comfort zone, she was thankful to all her mentors. And that is something, if we talk about inclusivity and diversity, where we that is that is a lever we can actually use. We can't probably change the nature of field work in a pinch. We can't provide immediate solutions which are virtual and, and be a full supplement. But what we can do is we can do mentoring and we can create an atmosphere which is welcoming and open. And I think that's an important culture change. And that's something which is upon all of us, the instructors, grad students, OTA, and the students who are in the undergrad association, right? So you don't look like a real geologist. I remember a couple of couple years ago, we had um, a grad student and she was really harassed because she didn't look like a real geology grad student, right? She didn't behave like one either. And I was shocked that students would, com would, comment, would do comments like that to other students. So when we talk about inclusivity, mentorship and changing the culture, how we approach, how we judge, and how we deal with people who are not part of this image of the cool dude going out camping. I think that's huge. Yeah, I think that's something that I've actually really uh, tried really hard to do at Whitefish is that when somebody is falling behind or, or needs extra help is not kind of stigmatizing that and just trying to provide something that is more like mentorship than just like, oh, I'm just going to help you along here where, you know, I've taught multiple people how to climb a hill that is mostly rock, right? And you don't do that by just being like, oh, just climb. You have to, you know, okay, you can touch the ground, you can hold onto the trees and you actually show them and you do it together. And just kind of, I had, I had one person a couple of years ago who by the end of field school was jumping from rock to rock and was just like, look what I can do. And was totally comfortable on the ground and, at the beginning of field school was scared to be walking on uneven ground, right? And so that that doesn't happen by being negative towards somebody. That happens by giving them that support that you're talking about, Uli. And I think that aspect of mentoring that both Heidi and Uli mentioned is, is really important because being in the field with people just um, allows this to happen naturally. Like it's not forced because you start talking and you learn about other people like i have to write a lot of reference letters part of it is because i a lot of students think i should know them and and the best reference letters 
are for those that I actually have taught in the field or have been with me on a, um, a research trip because I can honestly say that these are good people and that they work well in the team, that they ask good questions, that they think quick on their feet and can, can troubleshoot. And, um, and it's not just that they did well in a course and um, answered the questions right. I think I'd like to turn this back to the students. Dean and Sophia, how, what's your perspective on how mentorship has affected your fieldwork? I personally come from a background where I did a lot of like hiking and, and outdoorsy things as a kid. So that part of field school wasn't totally shocking for me, but I was still very much taken outside of my comfort zone during Whitefish because there was just, you know, a schedule that we had to follow every day. And there was a lot of new things being shown to us. And there was a lot of expectations from us, but I felt that I was really supported by the TAs and the profs. And what I found was the most helpful is that they let everybody go at their own pace. And there was no, I think the most important thing is to uh, allow people to grow and experience the class and the course at their own pace. And that allows for a lot, uh, a lot better of a learning experience than to just be you know, forced to do something that someone isn't totally comfortable with from the get-go. I'd say, like, my experience with the mentorship, one thing I appreciated about the field courses is that we were put into groups and we were actually able to mentor each other because we all have different strengths and weaknesses. So I come from a background, rural Michigan, where I'm I'm out in the woods all the time. I'm used to climbing and being outdoorsy. So I had a lot of, I was able to mentor my field mapping partners and my, my other, in, in one course and lab mates in the other and at least in that those kind of aspects, and some of them were able to help me with with the uh, MATLAB programming and things like that. So, uh, yeah, I think that it was a nice chance to be a mentor and have other people take turns being mentors too. So, yeah, I really I appreciated that. And another thing I appreciated too was after taking mineralogy, where all the minerals are in pristine, beautiful condition. I, I remember just like. Being able to memorize, I can I can identify every sample of like, you know, pyrite that's in our lab, but that's very different from the things that are outside. I go outside and everything's oxidized, and I can't tell one rock from another. That's an entirely different ability to 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 gain, and I, I think I appreciated that um, as as my favorite takeaway. So both of you mentioned that you come from being kind of outdoorsy in the first place. Do you think that that influenced you choosing geology or choosing generally earth sciences? Not me personally. I I field courses. I don't. I wasn't even sure if I was going to do a field course. Um, I'm in the. I'm in a major that doesn't. I don't think require it particularly. So, I wasn't. I wasn't sure if I was going to do it. But then I was like, hey, I can get extra credits toward my degree if I do go during the summer and I can graduate faster. And then that turned into, wait, I really like this. I really learned a lot about this. Um, and it was that I wanted to do more field courses. Yeah, for me, I think it was definitely an influence. Uh, I just liked being outside and I liked all of the sciences and I just liked doing things with my hands. So field courses and geology just seemed like an obvious choice for me, which you know, maybe something that other students in the program have a similar experience with. But I think having this discussion today has kind of really like helped solidify some ideas and some directions for how to make 
the geoscience field more diverse and available for, for more people. Actually, maybe this is a good point to end our conversation. Uh, but before we before we say goodbye to everybody, we'd like to engage everyone in a little sci-fi creative thought exercise. So in any order, imagine it's 2075, 50 years from now, 100 years from now, how are field courses run and how are they different from what they look like today? Or how do you hope that they look different? How do you hope they're different even? Well, I, I can comment on the ways that I would hope that they're the same first. So I think I would still, <laughs> if, if I was teaching a field course in 2075, I think I would still be telling students to put away their phones, put away their GPSs. Here's a map, here's a compass, here's a piece of paper to draw your map on and getting back to the hands-on um, experiences. Even um, in the last decade, the, the way that technology has changed how people approach field work is quite astounding. I think that's going to continue, but it's really important to not depend on technology. So even as it continues to advance in the future, um, I think that getting back to some basic orienteering skills is really important. The ways that it looks different will depend a lot on how our universities look different. So if we can still afford to run these kinds of field courses and possibly run even more field courses, if you know, the future is bright, then we can offer more accessible options. Um, and of course, in an ideal world, we'll have made a lot more progress towards um, increasing diversity and accessibility of all of our field courses. So um, having really good, robust virtual field courses and new virtual technologies where students can really have an immersive experience if they're not actually able to go in the field. I think I'm really excited about the the possibilities for that kind of technology in the future, like um, even just standard VR, if that becomes something that everyone has a VR headset in their house, then if they were to take um, say Dan's <laughs> virtual course this past summer, then they could really, really become more um, immersed than if they're just looking at a 2D screen. So I think there's a lot of fun ways that, that technology will help us too. I could see that it becomes more individualized so that um, say each student has like some kind of a research question that they take in and they don't necessarily all do the same or learn the same, but that it's more geared towards specific needs that students have. So I think the pedagogy will, will change. Let me sketch two scenarios here. One is probably that the professor will no longer be in the field, right? You will have a virtual link to your students individually. So we conduct field courses very differently by having just a, a Zoom call essentially into the field. I'm saying that simply because resources will be a fighting point in universities, right? So we will try to make this cheap. We will try to have more students with less professors. So I'm not endorsing this, but I can see that this could happen. Similar ideas are already out there in the marine sciences that no longer the profs go on those ships. You send your grad students or undergrads and just coach them through video calls. Uh, I think that would be a bad development. And uh, I concur with Melissa. I hope we still do it with a compass and a field notebook and a pencil, because that's really what makes a geologist in the end. And uh, yeah, 
I'll leave it at that. Yeah, I think I lack some imagination, but I feel like they're they're all going to be on their tablets or on their virtual databases, trying to figure out who's already posted those answers. <laughs> no, uh, Selena, you have a good point. I mean, teaching whitefish when I came in two thousand two, two thousand three, was a very different experience than ten years later. And the big difference was when we started whitefish. There was no cell phone receptions. No, there was no Wi-Fi, so it was a very, very different group dynamic, right? Because people were not sitting in the main lounge checking their emails, reading their phones. So I think that will make a huge impact and much more, much beyond to what we currently see in field work. Because you know, there will be no longer anywhere a dead zone without internet. So it will be a very different experience for the students. It certainly wasn't really roughing it. I do recall downloading an episode of Game of Thrones for Sophia in the lounge. <laughs> I remember that too. <laughs> Maybe there will be no social aspect to it because you'll all be doing your little thing. I remember being on a, on a joyous expedition in, when was that? In the 90s, there was no internet connectivity. You, you were allowed, I think, one email per day, right? Without attachment. What's about it? So what do you do in the evening? You have we had a big library of movies and people would mount movie movie nights by theme. And it, there was nothing else to be done. Ten years later I was on another trip. Now we had constant internet connectivity. People were downloading movies, watching movies in their in their state rooms. You wouldn't see anyone in the lounge anymore, right? Completely different trip. So technology will really change this kind of group experience. Hopefully in a good way, but I'm skeptical. I think that the technology side also makes it easier to do some logistics. Even just thinking kind of pre-Google Earth field planning, maybe you were lucky if you had some satellite photos or some contour maps, but now you can just go and get your satellite, your Google Earth satellite photos for free anywhere, and it makes it really easy. So th these kinds of things are also really helping us, and I think will continue to make it easier to, to plan your field work as well. Heidi and Dan, any predictions? Those were all very good, well-thought-out reasons, but it lacked, to me, a little bit of the sci-fi quality that was um, requested. So my field course 100 years from now, we are going to hop on board the space elevator and go up to the moon. That'll take about half the day. So um, in the afternoon, we'll go do some igneous petrology on, on lunar samples. And the next day, we'll hop on the um, Interplanetary Express to go to Mars, where we will investigate um, lava flows on Olympic Mons. That'll probably take a couple of days, and we'll have each have sections and map out the different contacts with the underlying lithologies. The next day, we will go to the famous Martian canals, where we will discuss whether these were in fact formed by liquid water or other geological processes. Uh, this part of the exercise will, will probably take um, the rest of the week, and then we will be off to Venus. Um, I can't really hypothesize what we'll be investigating there, because all we can see at this point is clouds, um, but I'm sure there's going to be something geologically spectacular, after which we will go back to Earth and go down the space elevator on what is a very fulfilling two-week course. Clearly, you've already written the syllabus. Can you uh, forward that to me? <laughs> so one of, one of the ideas for the online field course actually was to do geological mapping on Mars, um, but it was too difficult to build 
um, in the time we had. Um, but no, I just thought of that in the last couple of minutes when the question was asked. But Dan, what kind of accessibility issues do we have sending students to the moon and Mars? <laughs> well, by then, we nobody will actually work anymore. We'll be completely sustained um, by our alien overlords. Heidi, any follow-up? Yeah, do you want to take us back to Earth, Heidi? I'm not sure how to follow that up. Because <laughs> um, I would like to take that field course. I'd like to take that field course. That would be nice. Um, I, I'm definitely in the boat that I really hope that it's kind of like back to basics, looking at rocks, compass, map. Um, but the thing that I think will be different is that the there will be options to do like the virtual reality thing. And people actually... Some people already have done that or are working on that um, for like the this year's field schools that I've seen online. I haven't actually seen the VR because I don't have a headset or anything, uh, but it sounds really cool. And I can only imagine that that technology is just going to get so much better and so much more like immersive and be able to kind of use it specifically for geology. Even um, with all of the kind of online sample stuff on Sketchfab, that's happening with like the rocks and mineral samples kind of that stuff is all really cool. And so I can only imagine that a hundred years from now, like all of that's actually going to look real and it's just going to get better than what it is now. Yeah. So now it's the time for all of our listeners to take bets on what's going to happen. So go ahead and do that now. <laughs> um, but thank you so much for, uh, for engaging in that creative thinking exercise. I think we came up with some really cool answers. I'm really interested to see in what's going to happen. Um, but without further ado, I'd like to invite Dean to say our ending quote of the episode. All right, the ending quote. The student discovers too late that ordinary, unrelated knowledge is not power, that only scientific knowledge, unified, related experiences are valuable. And that is by Zonia Baber. And a quick quick bio of her. Um, she was born in 1862. She graduated in the first class of geology that accepted women, graduating in 1904 from the University of Chicago. She later developed new learning aids and field-based teaching methods, which are still used today. She was a feminist icon um, in her in, amongst uh, the Chicago area and in academia anti-imperialist and environmentalist. She served on the executive committee of the NAACP of Chicago, and she died in 1955 at the age of 93. Thought it actually pretty ended up encapsulating this discussion pretty well. Thank you for that. That was good. Yeah, and I'd like to say a really big thank you to all of our guests for volunteering their time and participating in this discussion. It's really good to have this discussion and have so many different diverse opinions on this. So thank you for being here. And thank you to our listeners as well. We hope to see you tune in next week again for a brand new episode of Earth News Interviews. Until then, leave no stone unturned. Earth News Interviews is brought to you by the Department of Earth Sciences at U of T. The views expressed in this episode do not necessarily reflect the official policies of the university. 